Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Point Church, and thank you for being here. Please stand up for the reading of God's Word. If you would like to follow along with the reading and need a Bible, they can be found in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take this one with you. Or if you know someone who needs a Bible, please take it and give it to them. We would love for you to have God's word in your hands throughout this week. Today's scripture will be taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and can be found on page 973 on those Bibles. Follow along with me as I read. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for our faith in you, that it is not by performance, um, that our relationship is with you. And this week, as we've caught ourselves performing and um, just deviating away from keeping our eyes on you, I pray that we'd focus on you and uh, just listening to the sermon and being in community this morning at church, that we would realign to what you have for us. Amen. You guys can be seated. The gospel is the most powerful truth in all of the universe. It transforms us. So when someone becomes a Christian, it isn't mere information that has changed us. It isn't that we were ignorant of knowledge and somebody gave us information about who Jesus is, and now that we know what we know, we're right with God. That, that's one ditch, uh, information, not transformation. The other side of the ditch would be confirmation, where we got in with a group of people who love Jesus, and instead of listening to Run DMC, we started listening to DC Talk. Instead of wearing Abercrombie and Fit shirts, we started wearing a breadcrumb and fish shirts. Instead of going to concerts, we went to youth group. And instead of uh, you know watching, the only rated R movie now we watch is The Passion of the Christ. Like we've, our life has changed. Like our rhythms are different because we've thrown in with these people who love Jesus, but we may just be confirmed to these people who are a functional mediator now between us and God rather than that mediator being Christ himself. A Christian is someone who hears the hard news of the gospel that we're sinful, that we have committed cosmic treason, we have broken the commandments of God. So the, the fatal flaw for us is not that we're unhappy. I mean, everybody's unhappy. We're all unhappy about something. And you may think that if, if you'll get close to the Lord, he'll teach you how to be happy. And in some, 
instances, yes, if you live with more wisdom or if you follow some principles, your life can be void of some foolishness and folly or even evil that would just lead to better circumstances. But ultimately, what's deeply wrong with us is not our unhappiness, it's our unholiness. It's that we've committed cosmic treason. We've broken the commandments of God. We've lied so that people would uh, have greater respect for us than they should <laughs> because what we said about ourselves isn't true. We've coveted. We've We've wanted to have something and someone else gets it. So if you, if you think you've never coveted, have you ever had a job and then it was time to promote someone to supervisor and then someone got promoted to supervisor and now all of a sudden, hey, that guy shouldn't have it. I should have that. That's coveting. We've, we've taken things that don't belong to us. If you've ever been a child grocery shopping with your mom, you know you ate the grapes, right? So we've all taken something we didn't work for and said it's mine. We've broken the commands of God. And Christians are people who were guilty and have been made innocent through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When we believed by faith that Jesus lived a sinless life, when we believe by faith that Christ on the cross was not just an innocent man that died a wrongful death, but he was supernaturally absorbing the wrath of God against sin so that sinful people could be forgiven of their sins because there was one who made the perfect sacrifice in our place. And we believe by faith in the resurrection of Jesus, that Christianity is not just a philosophical movement. We're not just trying to be nice to people that we hate. We're not just like through our teeth like, oh, bless you, brother. You know, like our, we're not living the wrong kind of hypocrisy. We've been transformed because Jesus raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven historically, not figuratively. He sent the Holy Spirit to people who would believe in him. And we've been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. Sin is powerless over us so we can confess our sin when it's present. Uh, we can forgive sinners who have sinned against us in words or deeds. And our hope is that Christ would return. Our hope is not ultimately in who the president is or how the economy's doing or how we define a recession or, or our kids going to sleep on time or getting a promotion at work. Those things are important things, but the ultimate thing is that Christ is bringing heaven to earth. He will swing his leg over his horse. He will ride up to death. He will thrust his sword and death will die and Satan will go to hell forever. That's what we long for. That's what we hope for. And so we have been saved from hell. We have been saved to this body of believers. We've been saved to the church. And we've been saved for the mission of God. And here's the thing. And here's what Paul is writing about in Galatians 3. That's where we're at today. There are things fighting for our devotion and fighting for our affection. There is the demonic that is at war against us that's hoping that we will forget that we were saved from hell and, and hope to remind us that we were saved from our unhappiness so that we will look for happiness rather than look for heaven. There is demonic around us that hopes that we will forget that we've been saved to the church and we will try to find our people in some affinity group, whether it's politics or little league or whatever thing you're into, that that'll really be your, those are my people rather than the people Jesus has saved me to. And then mission, we'll get fired up. We'll be evangelists for, for certain causes, whether it's politics or health or, or financial freedom or whatever it is, there'll be something that will seat on the throne of our hearts and we will be most open-mouthed about those things other than Jesus. 
And the question is, how does this happen? Because as soon as we become Christians, there are things fighting for those affections in us. And that's what was happening to the churches in Galatia. It's happening to us today. So in the churches in Galatia, what had happened is people had come into the church pretending to be Christians so that they could straighten out the Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians were people who didn't grow up Jewish. They didn't grow up uh, you know, on the Wheaties box seeing a picture of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, the, the Jewish men at a certain age were circumcised. Gentile men knew nothing about circumcision. And so the, the, big, the big debate that was happening in the church is there was a bunch of men who loved Jesus, and then there was a bunch of men who loved the Old Testament law in the church and told the Gentile men that if you really are going to prove that you're a Christian, you need to be circumcised because that's what will, God will be pleased with you. Our grandfather in the faith, Abraham, was circumcised, so anybody who's going to be a child of the faith needs to be circumcised. So if you're not circumcised, God doesn't love you. That's ultimately what this came down to. Paul writes this letter to the churches to say that's not right. It's not true. We're not saved by a work of the flesh. We're not saved by the keeping of the law. We're not saved by merit. We're saved by grace, which is faith alone in the work of Christ alone. And so this is the work that Paul is going to do, and then I'm going to try to connect it to where we live today, because I don't think y'all are wondering, does God really love me if I'm not circumcised? I just don't think that's what's on your mind. In fact, I don't think you think about circumcision very much unless you read Paul's writings in the New Testament, okay? So I think that's fair. But what, what is going to happen is when you first become a Christian, it's just like anything else. You're going to live and log a lot of miles off of inspiration. Who knows what I mean about inspiration? Man, it just feels good. It hits you in the feels. Every time you read the scriptures, you're getting your mind blown because you didn't know that was in there. Um, and the Bible seems like this big, huge book that how could anyone search it out? Uh, your friendships are changing. New people are coming into your life. Um, you're getting baptized. We're throwing parties for you. It's amazing. You're, you're finding your spiritual gifts. It's almost intoxicating uh, when you first become a Christian as you're being inspired to do all of these things. But at some point, inspiration kind of runs out. It goes from you're the one primarily being discipled to now discipling someone else. A lot of times I'll get asked like, hey, uh, what, I need to be discipled. One of my first questions would be, who are you discipling? Because if you want to be discipled, go disciple. That's kind of how this works. And so you start investing into others. You realize that you're no longer the youngest person in the room. You're starting to get some maturity, and it's time for you to invest in those younger than you. And now it requires what? Discipline. Discipline to walk close with Jesus. It requires discipline to find your sin. It requires discipline to read the Word of God. It requires discipline to gather with other Christian believers and celebrate the work of Jesus. And that can be confusing because at one time you were inspired to do that emotionally. Now you have to pull from grit and be motivated by grace and do these things out of discipline. This is a conversation I have with my kids all the time. The inspiration is whenever you feel like doing something, you know, like playing video games and taking naps and staying up all night and eating food that ends with Eto's. We're all inspired, not, maybe not all of us, but I am inspired to do all those things, except maybe the video games. I kind of, after Mario Brothers, I gave up. So discipline is whenever we do the things we don't feel like doing, homework, exercising, you know, not having the fifth bowl of mashed potatoes or whatever it is. Discipline is whenever we do something uh, from our, our character is where we're, where we're accomplishing this from, not just motivation. 
And so that's what Paul's going to write about because there's going to be people trying to get you to, hey, come over here to Little League. Come over here to um, starting this business. Come over here to this other thing. And, and I'm going to hopefully do the work to show how I'm not the preacher who says, you got to come here every week, week to make me feel good about myself. And, if, and you're, um, God's pleased with you if you go to church every week. If that's what you walk out of here with, I didn't do a very good job, Okay. Um, but what I hope to walk out of here with today is for us to have a gauge on our heart to pay attention to what's happening in our heart and our affections whenever something new comes into our life, okay? So Paul says this. He starts right off by calling them names. I think that's fantastic. I just think it's awesome. Paul has got to be redneck because that's what rednecks do. Uh, He says, "'O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you?' He's saying that it's like you're under a spell, okay? It's like you're under a spell. You were worshiping Jesus. Someone else creeps in and says, hey, there's another way to get closer to God. And you're actually giving attention to it and credence to it, and you're being drawn away by it. And he points them back to their conversion and says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I don't think what he's saying is you are eyewitness accounts in Jerusalem to the death and resurrection of Jesus. What he's saying is we gathered up You heard the gospel preached, and you saw transformation in each other's life. This wasn't just information. It wasn't just confirmation. It was transformation. You have new desires. You started forgiving sins. You started confessing sins. Man, your father wound got healed up right away. You started begging God to heal people, and they were healed. You begged God to save people, and they were saved. Like Your life was transformed and rebooted. And it's good for us whenever we experience uh, mission drift, which is when we drift from remembering that we're saved from hell, chiefly. We drift from remembering that we're saved to the church, chiefly. We drift from remembering that we're saved for the mission of Jesus to make disciples and plant churches, chiefly. And we drift and forget our way into wandering and aimlessly wandering and living for different things. And what Paul would say is when this happens to us, and it happens to us, if you live long enough as a Christian, this will happen to you. You'll get bored with stuff. It's like um, if you had this meal and you used to eat it all the time, it was so good, and then you're like, I don't like that anymore. We eat it all the time, and you stop. And then you go to someone's house and they fix that meal and you're like, this is so good. Why did we ever stop this? We'll drift. You'll find reasons not to be a part of group, not to serve on a team. You'll find reasons not to be generous with your money. You'll find reasons not to find your sin, not to confess your sin. You'll find reasons not to pray for someone uh, that's not a Christian and invite them to church. You'll find reasons not to gather in this room. And by the way, whenever the, the writers write about not forsaking the gathering of the assembly, this is what he's talking about. I love group. We made a church that the primary discipleship strategy is community group. But if you're not getting in this room regularly, you're forsaking the gathering of the assembly. This is the thing that Paul was writing about. This is the thing the author of Hebrews writes about whenever we are saved to the church. It's for us to get in here, rub shoulders with each other, sing to Jesus, remember that we have things to confess, remember we have things to forgive, remember we have goals for mission, and let's get after it. And Paul writes and says, remember your conversion. Remember your transformation. Verse two, he says, let me ask you only this. And he's just like a preacher when the clock turns red, okay? Thinking he's got a little more time. Like people will say, in closing, I try to never say in closing because I know that ain't true. (laughs) Paul says, let me ask you only this. And then he asks five questions, okay? They're all rhetorical. The second question is my favorite. But the first one is, did you receive the spirit 
When he says spirit, this capital S, this is the Holy Spirit of God. Did the Holy Spirit of God come into your life by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, did the Holy Spirit of God come into your heart when you were circumcised, if you're one of the fellas, or did it come into your life whenever you believed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? The second question is, are you so foolish? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Number three, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, was junior varsity Christianity faith alone in the work of Christ alone, and varsity Christianity is now theology or spiritual gifts or, or whatever? Is there, do you see, see yourself as like, I'm even, God's even more pleased with me, He loves me even more because I've leveled up out of the Spirit and I'm now working from my own performance? The next question is, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Uh, in our language, the better word for suffer might be experience. Did you experience all these things? You saw people healed from cancer because you prayed for them. You didn't walk over to them and say, do 10 burpees and your cancer will go away. You, you begged God to save people. You didn't walk over to your unbelieving husband and say, you know, you need to be a more moral person so that you can go to heaven. No, you shared the gospel with them and they were saved. And now you're drifting into thinking because this new stuff is coming into your life and these people are preaching this different gospel to you that there's another way for God to be pleased with you and there's not. Let that thing be accursed, okay? He says this, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Paul is dropping a bomb on them and reminding them that, hey, remember, Abraham wasn't very Jewish. <laughs> but for you guys, you might be like, I don't know what that means. But for them, it'd be like, ah, scandal, you know? Oh, yeah, Abraham wasn't very Jewish. In fact, Abraham believed God for his righteousness whenever he was 75 years old. God shows up, makes a covenant with him and says, and, and I'll read that covenant. It says um, in Genesis 12, 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He reacted to the promise of God. And Lot, which was his uh, knucklehead nephew, went with him as well. There will be conflict later in that story. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now what Paul is, is doing here is showing them when God was pleased with Abraham, he was 75 years old. Later, because God was father and Abraham is now his son, he made another covenant with him to say, this is how you'll live set apart from everyone else around you. And one of the things you'll do is be circumcised. This will be one of our covenants. It wasn't so that God would love Abraham. God already loved Abraham. And what he's reminding them is Abraham didn't get circumcised till he was 99 years old, and he survived. That's a big deal, okay? But it wasn't the circumcision that pleased God. It was Abraham's faith. And this is what the gospel has looked like since the beginning of time, all the way back um, to Adam. So well, let me continue on. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
So you who are Christians are sons and daughters of faith by faithing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is this promise that if you'll trust Jesus, he'll give you credit for everything he did right, and he'll take the blame for everything you've done wrong. And in the throne room of heaven, this verdict will be declared on your life that you are now innocent, even though by merit-based living, you're guilty. It's a scandal. It isn't like you were bad and you figured out how to be good and now God likes you. It was you were guilty. God made you innocent when you trusted in Jesus. We believe the promises of God and that's counted to us as righteousness. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Uh, in the beginning, God made Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden. He said, you can do whatever you want, man. Run around naked, build cities, build families. And I know you're listening to like, it's weird to be naked. How could they just run around naked all the time? Wasn't weird yet. There wasn't any fear, guilt, or shame. But God said, one thing you don't do is eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So Satan shows up and he starts saying, did God really say this? Did God really say that? And he tempts Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then like Homer Simpson, they hide in the woods. And then God shows up and says, you know, have you seen that thing where he sinks back into the trees? And then God shows up and says, where y'all at? And they're like, oh man, we were hiding. And God's like, why were you hiding? And Adam's like, well, because we were naked. And God's like, who told you you were naked? Don't, you know? Ugh. So here's what happens. Eve blames the devil. God says, what happened? Well, it was the devil. He, he tricked us. And then Adam turns into a theologian. He gets all sovereignty of God, Calvinistic on God. And he says, Father, it was the woman whom you gave me that deceived me. So he uses that theology to get his way out of confessing sin. So then God curses Adam and Eve and the serpent. And it's like, hey, man, work is going to rise up against you. It's going to be hard. There's going to be pain in childbirth. And serpent, you're going to crawl on your belly all the time. You're going to be cursed among creation. And then he gives the proto-evangelion. I think I said that right. My theological friends always correct me. I don't know if I said it right, and I'm going to blame it on where I'm from if I said it wrong. But it was the first time the promise was made that a man would be born of woman whose heel would be bruised by the serpent, but that man would crush the serpent's head. That was a promise believed by Adam and Eve. That was the first time the good news was preached to, to mankind that there would come one who the Jewish people called the Messiah or the Christ, who would be the, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, or the one who would hold office and be the functional mediator between God and his people. And so that promise was made and believed, and that's Genesis 3. In Genesis 6, we see where God looks at all of creation, and this is like whenever the Jehovah's Witness show up at my house or uh, the Mormons show up at my house, and they're like, man, it's so bad out there, it's so bad, you should be Mormon or you should be Jehovah's Witness. The world's never been this bad. I'm always like, have you ever read Genesis 6? It was so bad, God was like, God, what in the world is going on? He unplugs the whole thing for 30 seconds and plugs it back in through Noah and his family. And so he goes to Noah and says, Noah, I'm going to put judgment on the earth. It's going to flood. You're going to build a boat and your family, if they'll get inside the ark, they'll be spared. Noah's righteousness was counted to him because he believed what God said. It wasn't like, well, let's see how good a boat he builds before I know if I let him in. No, he builds the boat because he believes the promises of God. Okay, so then we go to Genesis chapter 12. God picks Abram and makes a promise with him and says, you are going to be the father of many nations. 
which what the Jewish people struggled to believe because for so long, the way that you became a person of God is you would like move to Israel and not eat pork and have a priest and bring your animal in for the annual sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. And this was the way that we looked to the coming one who would be the Messiah. But the promise wasn't that all nations will become Israel. The promise is that all nations will become blessed. So through this nation, a man is born named Jesus, the Messiah, the perfect prophet speaking truth and love, leading to repentance, the perfect priest who is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins for all time so that we could be in right relationship with God, the perfect king who rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father and who has is as we speak, crushing the head of Satan. So Satan roams the earth now, spewing out lies, but he does so as a toothless dragon. He cannot destroy the church. He's tried to destroy the church for 2,000 years, and it's just like a grease fire that he's pouring water on. It just spreads all over the globe, okay? So we become Christians by believing and reacting to the promises of God. Jesus comes and, st and starts a church that transcends all nations. And the way this church grows is by preaching the gospel. The hard news is we're sinners. The good news is Christ in our place for our sins. And people believe that. Holy Spirit becomes residence in your life. You begin to find your sin and see the beauty of Christ as your Savior. And your life begins to change because you've come in direct contact with the holiness of God through the Holy Spirit, putting to work into your life the work of Jesus. So God's people are made not by behaving, but by believing, okay? Jesus lived, died, raised from the dead, and sends the Holy Spirit to all who will believe. And this is the work that Paul is doing in this book. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And he says, for the righteous shall live by faith. And what he's saying is the right way to read the law or the right way to read the Bible is like looking into a mirror and the mirror goes, hey, man, you need to brush your hair. Hey, you, you got food in your teeth. Like it, it shows flaws to us. We don't look in there and be like, oh, man, check that out. You know, like when we look into the Bible, it shouldn't just show us our spouse's sin and our neighbor's sin and people who sin differently than us. Because when we look in the Bible and see no sin in our own life, then we might come to the revelation that we are Christ himself. And if you do that, you're crazy. Okay, that's not true. Don't start a new religion. You'll go to hell for that. All right. That would not be good for you. Okay, so we should look into the law and it should show us that we need a Messiah, that we need a Savior, that we can't do what it says. But people will deceive us into thinking, well, as long as you're better at it than someone else, you're fine. That's the religious heart. As long as I keep the law better than Rob or Tyler, then I'm good. Okay, that's what has to functionally happen in your heart. But he says, whoever tries to live by the law is cursed because you can't keep the whole law. He says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Gentiles are saved by faith like Abraham was saved by faith. And all of Old Testament Israel were ultimately saved by their faith in the promise of God. 
All of the sacrificial system, all of the dietary law was to set them apart to live different as the people of God because they are the people of God. It wasn't the means in which you become the people of God. And that's what Paul is trying to say. And he's saying, those of you who are trading the gospel, the good news, for good advice are making a bad trade. And here's the the essence of what he's saying. We're all using something to justify ourselves. Christians are people who are using the work of Jesus as our justification. Justification is the idea that you're innocent, or you're right, or you're good, or correct, or better, or whatever. We'll all draw a line through humanity and separate humanity. And what we're prone to do, if you have a moralistic approach to life, you'll say, well, bad people do these things. Good people don't do those things. I'm good. I'm over here. Bad people are people who behave differently than me. Maybe you draw a line through life and you say the good people or the successful people, uh, they eat clean, they work out, they take, you know, they, their kids take naps. Like you're, you're trying to live life right. You're trying to do everything correctly. And then bad people eat Cheetos or whatever it is. And like this isn't the stuff we go to group and say, this is how I see the world. This is the stuff that we believe in our heart. And this is where we think that our dignity comes from and our value as human beings come from and, and like our, our worth, our self-worth comes through what we have achieved, what we have accomplished and who we have become. And so Paul is saying you've made a bad trade when you've stopped responding to good news. Good news is when you go to the doctor and hear the cancer is gone. There's nothing you do to make it go. You just hear that it's gone, and it awakens your heart to joy. You you find out your kids come to see you, and they say, hey, you're going to be a grandparent. Well, that's fantastic. That's good news. Your heart knows good news. If you've ever seen one of them dead gum tear jerking videos where soldiers come home and like they walk out on the middle of the football field, and the dad surprises his kid and all that, like I just cry like a baby every time I see one of those because it's good news. It doesn't say, you know, run snakes and then we'll let you see your dad. That's good advice. Nobody wants to watch that video. Good advice would say, move more, eat less, you'll lose weight, you'll be less insulated. Uh, Good advice would say, uh, spend less, make more, and you'll have money at the end of the month. You'll have more money than month instead of more month than money. We know what good advice is, and that's not the gospel. And so Paul's saying you're trading good news for good advice, and you're putting a curse on yourself when you do so. Because temporarily, you can feel the satisfaction of being better than the people that you believe you are superior to, but in the end, you'll spend eternity in hell. That's the trade. Or Christ could have went through hell for you, and you could have trusted in his goodness for your righteousness, which makes you like everyone else, sinful and in need of a savior, but also like everyone else, you can join them shoulder to shoulder on Sunday and worship the Lord with them and see the beauty of Christ together, okay? And so we, just, we, we tend to justify ourselves through our behaviors when we drift from the gospel, believing that we're justified through the behavior of Christ. So I don't think that you guys are wondering, should I get circumcised? <laughs> I don't think that's your confusion. I think that there are little priests, there are demonic lies around us that are saying, hey, your value can come from here. Yeah, I know Jesus, you did that for a while, but your value can come from here. It can come from Little League. You can start remembering like, oh man, I didn't get to do this when I was a kid. I can live through my kids. And the next thing you know, your life is devoted, like your mission is to win that trophy and your people is not your church, it's your team. And you're not saved from hell, you're saved from the unhappiness of losing. And now we have a coach who's going to help us win. 
Also, I love football, okay? So I'm not about to make weird rules for Grace Point Church. But I do want to know what's going on in your heart. So, so, so here it is. Like, you need a dashboard on your heart, okay? And the dashboard should raise red flags. And here's, here's the best indicator of, of the things that are creeping in. What are you willing to forsake the gathering of the assembly for? Now, I'm, I'm not the preacher who's saying, like, if you're not here every week, God don't love you. Um, if you're not here every week, you know, you need to, you know, make me feel good about my insecurities. The more people hear me preach raises my value. Well, then I'm doing the same thing. What I'm saying is, who is going to remind you that you were saved from hell? Who's going to remind you that sin is powerless? When fear, guilt, and shame creeps into your life, who's going to be your people that gently, lovingly leads you to repentance rather than lead you to worship these other idols? Okay? Like, Who's going to be the people that remind you that our mission is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and that heaven is coming to earth and we want to bring as many people with us? It can become parenting strategies. It can be like, man, my kid takes naps at 9 and 10.30 in the morning. I just can't gather with God's people. Lately, it's politics. There's like this uh, political religion where you have to pick one of these suckers. And used to, people would disagree but not divide with people of different political colors. But now we divide and we find unity among people who are not even Christians, but they agree with me politically. That's, that's not unity. That's uniformity around idealism. That's not the gospel. It might be fitness. You, man, you found out what it feels like to have 20 less pounds, and that is so good for you. I hope you get more less pounds, okay? But what can happen is you start to believe, I'm finally of value. I finally have dignity. I'm finally worth something. Maybe it's not your body. Maybe it's your bank account. You finally feel like, man, we have a six-month emergency fund stacked up. We finally are good people, you know? What are you willing to miss church for? So, for example... Your family comes into town and man, this, you're, you're, so man, we're not going to be up at church. We're not going to gather up. We're going to go up and see the Grand Canyon. Let me lead with saying this, by the way. I used to think it's just a hole in the ground. Who would go look at that thing? And then I went to it and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. And don't move. We're going to die if you move, you know, because the fence is not, it is not a good fence. It's a big, the fence is very short. The hole is very deep. Um, but here's, I hope... I hope you don't leave today feeling like you've got tools to bully people into don't play football, don't ever miss church. By the way, like my wife and my, one of my daughters is not here because they, had, they don't feel good. And while I believe in generosity, we're not going to share that with you, okay? Yes, to the glory of God and the good of his people. Here's why I say you need a dashboard on your heart. What, is the, what are the things that make you think, man, it, it's okay. I, in your, in your heart, what lies are you hearing that says, that's not really your people anyways? These are your people. Like, your dignity don't really come from that. Like, like are, you, are you not gathering with the saints because ultimately your mom or your dad comes into town and you're ultimately living for their approval? And so actually it's an act of worship for you to go be with your family at the Grand Canyon on a Sunday than gathering with God's people? By the way, go to the Grand Canyon and to the glory of God. And if you miss a Sunday, I'm not going to run you down. It's, that's not my point. My point is, what's going on in your heart? Christianity is all about affections and desires and nuance. So for example, gluttony is a sin, but the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt only have one cup of mashed potatoes per serving. So I'm not going to say, you can't eat mashed potatoes. I had some last night to the glory of God and the good of my life. But I don't know if it's one cup, if it's two cups, if it's three cups. I think the better question is, what's happening in your heart? 
Are you like, man, it's been a rough week, it's a rough day? Like, mm, my God and my comfort is my mashed potatoes. This is like a warm blanket wrapping me up and telling me everything's going to be okay. Are you willing to forsake the mission of God to chase after some childhood dream that I didn't get to be Michael Jordan, but maybe my kid can be? And you think the value of your family comes in the accomplishments that we can have on the field or, or education or whatever it is. Go make grades. Go win Little League Super Bowls. I'm not saying that stuff is evil. I'm saying there are narratives that are fighting for the affections of your heart. And you've been saved from hell. You've been saved to the church. And you've been saved for the mission of Jesus. And when we forsake gathering ourselves with certain people who are going to remind us what we've been saved from, remind us what we're going to be saved for, remind us what we've been saved to, you will be miserable. Because joy is not connected to those temporal things. Happiness is. You will be happy. That's the other thing. You'll smile. You'll have a good day. But your joy is not anchored to those things. It's anchored to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the promise of his return. And so this has implications for how, what we, how we worship the Lord today. And it has implications for how we see others in gospel potential. We're not looking for people who agree with us on everything or who are good people and trying to get them into our church. We're looking for everyone to hear the good news because Jesus will save anyone. He'll save anyone. He'll save them from their fitness. He'll save you from your theology. He'll save you from your little league. He'll save you from your perfect parenting strategies. And he'll remind you that your identity is in his perfection. And then in Christian freedom, go be the biggest parenting rock star you can. And Christian freedom, win trophies. And Christian freedom, engage politics. And Christian freedom, enjoy theology to the glory of God. But do not use those things to give yourself dignity and value and think that those are the things that will make God impressed with you. God is impressed with you when you get low and say, I am a sinner. And you worship Jesus and say, he is the beauty of my life. Jim Elliott gives this great quote, and he lost his life on mission for Jesus. He says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray.